listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 159. Today, we are talking about the minimum wage, yet again. This time, we will hear from organizers from St. Paul, Minnesota, about their fight for 15. But first, the news, including the news of the ongoing teacher strike wave. China is both admired and maligned as the world's biggest industrial powerhouse. But deep within the gears of its hyperactive manufacturing sector, a workers' movement is gaining steam. The latest rumble hit the Jassic Technology Factory in the southern boomtown of Shenzhen. The workers there had complained of being treated, quote, like slaves. They were robbed of wages, they said, and subjected to regular schedule changes and other abuses. So they launched a unionization campaign, which is perfectly within their right under Chinese labor law. They were backed by a cadre of student organizers from around the country, and they seemed at first to be successful, gaining the approval of the local branch of China's official labor organization, the All-China Federation of Trade Unions. However, as is often the case in China, Union officials seemed to be colluding behind the scenes with corporate executives, and the workers were ultimately betrayed. The management struck back against the workers by locking them out shortly thereafter, and without union support, many activists were attacked when they tried to protest, subsequently arrested, and then detained. But the siege might just be the spark that ignites a new kind of labor movement in China. A group of so-called concerned students for the JASIC workers has mobilized in solidarity across the country, and they've even made international headlines. According to Hong Kong-based labor scholar Jenny Chan, students from more than a dozen universities have made their holiday a solidarity summer. They have, quote, joined hands with the JASIC workers by launching online petition drives, establishing legal aid clinics, and supporting local grassroots organizing with activists from the Migrant Worker Advocacy Center of Shenzhen. Often, she noted, their activism has run counter to stern warnings by university officials and professors. It is indeed a tough time to be a student activist or labor organizer in China. President Xi Jinping recently expanded his powers and tightened his grip on political dissent by instituting more media controls and clamping down on workplace activism. The increasingly tight authoritarian security state, however, might not be strong enough to overcome the power of brewing labor unrest across the country. As China Labor Watch's Geoff Crothall told me from Hong Kong, their campaigns have often been successful. In many cases where there have been wildcat strikes and demonstrations, he says, it is safe to say that the local government officials would not have gotten involved at all unless the workers had staged collective protests. So organizing does get the goods even in a country where there is no uh, independent trade union. But even if they lack a formal independent union, workers like the Jassic Rebels are taking a more radical approach, building cross-sector coalitions with civil society to strive for more economic security and social dignity. So while Trump is focused on the global trade war, they are battling for rights at work. It's safe to say that labor everywhere stands to gain when Chinese workers take action. 
We have, you might have noticed, talked about teacher strikes a lot recently on this show, and the teachers aren't stopping, so neither are we. This time, it's the West Coast that's popping off, complete with strikes in Washington State, with some creative picket line song and dance routines, and strike authorization votes in Los Angeles and Seattle. To give us some context for everything that's happening, I spoke with Barbara Mataloni, past president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and now education coordinator at Labor Notes. The beginning of the school year is starting off with a bunch of more teacher strike activities. So I guess give us a quick rundown on what's happening. Where are people on strike? Where are people voting to go on strike? The two big stories are that the United uh, Teachers of L.A. took a strike vote just last week, and they had more than 81% turnout and 97% uh, strike authorization. And uh, Los Angeles is the second largest public school district in the country. So um, that's big news, and they'll be looking to strike. Uh, if they go on strike, it'll be probably sometime late October, November, as they uh, go through the process uh, with the district, which seems entirely unwilling to consider their demands. And I think it's really important as you think about their demands that mm-hmm. they are talking about the schools the communities deserve. So they're talking about class size. Uh, they're talking about access to counselors. They're talking about librarians. They're really talking about the conditions in which uh, students learn and teachers teach. And then in Washington State, there have been uh, strike authorizations taken, and, uh, and educators are on strike. It's been hard to keep track of exactly the number right now, uh, but in at least 10 districts, they are out walking the picket line. And that that is relative to uh, a funding uh, increase from the legislature, uh, $1 billion in funding relative to a court hearing, uh, a court decision. And the teachers are out on strike demanding that those funds, which were directed by the legislature to go to salary increases, actually mm-hmm. go to the teachers. And, and that's an interesting strike because every contract had to be reopened to address this funding increase. And what's happening is that teachers are really paying attention to what's happening in other districts and are are learning from each other, being inspired by each other, and setting demands relative to what other districts are able to achieve in their negotiations. I was talking to a teacher uh, just this week in Tacoma who said that, like, her members are, are more educated than ever about what's mm-hmm. happening with the contract, not only with their contract, but with other contracts. And as well, the community is aware of what's happening. Uh, so even though it's individual contracts that are being negotiated, it's a statewide issue. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a level of transparency that's public that is, is helping people, helping to motivate people to demand more. And also, interestingly, I think members in locals where there hasn't been transparency around negotiations are demanding more transparency. Yeah, and one of the places that took a a strike vote was Seattle, right? Yeah. They currently have a tentative agreement, and Uh they will be voting on that on Saturday. And Uh Seattle's interesting because with the uh, increase in funding, the uh, Washington Education Association told members that for 
uh, teachers' unions, teachers' uh, locals, they should be demanding a bottom floor of 15% increase in salary. And mm-hmm. for paraprofessionals and support staff, 30%. And the TA coming out of Seattle is 10.5%. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely educators in Seattle who are not happy with that coming forward. And my guess is they'll probably agree to the TA, but there's definitely, you know, that's an example of where members are in one local are seeing other local fold out for much more and are then putting pressure back on their leadership to say, how come you're not holding out for more? I wanted to talk about the term that you mentioned at the beginning, the schools our students deserve, and the history of that particular phrase, the way it's really become the rallying point for this shift among teachers' unions over the last several years. Yeah, so that comes out of uh, the Chicago Teachers' Union, which went on strike in uh, 2012. And they were able, uh, in in their successful strike, to really organize the community as well as the members to say, you know, how we treat teachers, both in terms of funding and in terms of issues of autonomy and the way that the school day is structured is about the the well-being of our students. And the community got behind that uh, in in a really big way. And that uh, was picked up by St. Paul. It was picked up uh, in Portland. It's been picked up here in Massachusetts. Uh, UTLA is talking about that. And I, I, it, it's not new in the mm-hmm. sense that that's what educators have always been fighting for at some level, to, you know, the dignity and respect of fair compensation is about the schools our communities deserve. If educators are going into work every day and not experiencing themselves as valued, both in terms of how they're compensated and in terms of the level of autonomy that they experience in their job and professional respect, that clearly impacts the students. I think what Chicago did for all of us was give us a a way to talk about that and in so doing really bring the community in. Um, or or maybe not not just bring the community in, but access the fact that our communities actually value public education and they value educators uh, and they want to fight for public education. And so they created a, it's more than a narrative, but a way for people to come in and uh, a vision to fight for. And this is, as you mentioned, the, the caucus that currently leads the Chicago Teachers Union was elected in 2010. And since then, we've seen a, a wave of reform caucuses and reform leadership, including your own in Massachusetts. And that is where the, the current leadership of the Los Angeles teachers come from. Can you talk a little bit about that history and how that's playing out? now in these, in you know, in Seattle, in L.A., and in these other strikes? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really key part of the story. Um, and, I, and I would, you know, look to West Virginia, North Carolina, Arizona. In, in one way, uh, if we look at West Virginia as an example, like that was a, a deep rank and file movement to the degree that it appears somewhat, it appears spontaneous. It, it was, but the conditions were such that people were, were, were fed up, were, were talking to each other, and were experiencing their statewide leadership as not effective in, in fighting uh, for, you know, absolutely what they needed. 
but it's more than spontaneous in the sense that uh, there has been for the last six years uh, a network of uh, progressive education union members, uh, rank and file members who have been meeting and talking to each other and supporting each other to say that um, union leadership has not been addressing the realities of the work site, has not been taking on the corporate reform efforts and fighting uh, militantly against those, and has not been uh, really uh, naming a vision for public education uh, that we need. And so how do we support each other in um, transforming our unions to become unions that actually fight for the schools our communities deserve and are willing to engage in a struggle and have faith that through engaging in that struggle and taking on these fights, we can win and, and win for our communities as well as for our educators. So there's a network that's out there that's been active, and we talk to each other, and we're learning from each other and supporting each other. And that's a big reason that this is happening. Yeah, I think the narrative of the last year has been that it started in West Virginia. And while I'm very happy that everything uh, with everything that did happen in West Virginia, I think the story has to go back a little bit further. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about actually, you know, the history of this sort of this wave of the of not just austerity, but this real tendency among both political parties to blame public sector workers and teachers specifically for the problems of the public sector. If you could talk a little bit about the the way this rhetoric of, you know, blaming teachers for mm-hmm. everything that's wrong with everything came about and how the turn has, you know, it, it took teachers unions a while to figure out how to respond to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know, it's been at least 20 years in the making and, uh, in t- you know, with No Child Left Behind under the Bush administration and then accelerated uh, under Barack Obama with the race to the top that, you know, was a narrative that was being promulgated by corporate interests and then picked up uh, very wholeheartedly by the Democrats as well as the Republicans. Uh, to claim that uh, public schools were failing, uh, that the reason public schools were failing was that, uh, because of unions protecting educators and educators in general being a, a problem, you know, selfish, greedy unions. And with that, an overlay of saying that it was sort of the individual racism of educators that was a problem uh, and that this is a civil, claiming this is a civil rights issue. Uh, and and really very successful in part because, as you point out, like union leadership, rather than defending uh, public education, defending unions and defending uh, the the teaching profession, sort of backed off and and accepted the criticism as true. And, you know, part of the complexity of that is that public schools as institutions in this country certainly – had structural racism as a part of how they functioned, but the unions were not strong in articulating that that racism was relative to how we finance our schools uh, and how we, you know, we as a community value black and brown children. So, so union leadership, you really like just kept taking a step back relative to that narrative. And I would say that that narrative was like very deliberately promulgated by people whose interest was, and we look at the Koch brothers now, we see Betsy DeVos right out there 
as the poster child for this, whose interest is privatizing the public good, uh, public education as, you know, one of the strongest last public institutions that we have, um, and, and, and so privatizing that for profit, and in doing that as well, being sure to bust our unions because public sector workers are the strongest uh, unions left uh, in terms of really defending workplace rights. And, and union leadership let themselves be on the defensive about that and accept a lot of the narratives about that. So what, but what we've seen in the last, I would say, eight to ten years with the Caucus of Rank and File Educators out of Chicago helping to show us the way is that rank and file members feel a real disconnect between what they experience at the work site, how they understand what's actually happening to their capacity to to educate based on the values that brought them to public education and what the leadership was doing. And there's been, a, you know, across the country, in small and big ways, a rank-and-file uprising to reclaim the values and dignity of what it means to be a public school educator uh, and of public education. So last question, if the second largest school district in the country goes on strike. If Seattle rejects this agreement, it also goes on strike. What is that going to mean? What is that going to look like? If Seattle went on strike, it would be amazing yeah. because that would be a real rank and file uprising because mm-hmm. the leadership is bringing forward a tentative agreement. So that would, I think, shake union leadership across the country more than anything. And, and quite honestly, I don't. I would be shocked if that happened. I don't know that the, the rank and file movement is, is ready to do that in Seattle or not. And I honestly don't know. But when UTLA uh, goes on strike, I think even their, their authorization uh, mm-hmm. vote, um, it, I, I think it will further inspire educators across the country and union members across the country, not just uh, education sector unions, but I think union members across the country. I would anticipate seeing um, acts of solidarity with UTLA so that they would not um, be alone in this fight, but that they would know that there are union sisters and brothers across the country who support them. And I also think that we are likely to then see more job action potentially more strikes that are not only just local, but potentially regional, maybe statewide. I mean, there is, there's conversation uh, out there about organizing broader actions. I don't think we need to have coordinated national job actions. I think that would be beautiful, but I think we are going to see job actions that are about Union members, educators, really saying this is our work, and we are going to um, claim the dignity of our work, and we will withhold our labor until our demands are met. That was Barbara Madaloni, education coordinator at Labor Notes. Campus activism has historically been a key force for many social movements, but recently there has been an unprecedented surge in union activity led by student workers across private colleges and universities. 
The National Labor Relations Board under the Obama administration issued rulings that paved the way for graduate student teachers and researchers at private institutions to collectively bargain and form unions. Under President Trump, those rights are once again under threat. But student workers have moved forward at a number of campuses, including Harvard and NYU, to form formal unions and to fight for better wages and working conditions. But in Illinois, where both public and private campuses have seen major unionization campaigns among student workers as well as adjuncts, Governor Bruce Rauner just vetoed a bill that would have allowed graduate research assistants to unionize alongside teaching assistants. The bill would have clarified rules around forming unions of graduate workers, but Rauner objected. He argued that the measure was overbroad because, quote, treating graduate assistants as employees and not students ignores the personal nature of the graduate educational process, where individual students make choices in their best educational and career interests. While they might be striving to make the best choices possible, it's really hard to do that, of course, when you're living paycheck to paycheck. GEO, the graduate union at the University of Illinois Urbana, had been campaigning for the measure and argued that research assistants such as doctoral fellows who work in science labs are just as critical to the academic labor force as teaching fellows are. GEO denounced the veto as, quote, a shameful denial of our rights as workers, but we will continue to organize and fight. And the UI campus workers aren't slowing down in their efforts to make their institution fair for all. They recently passed resolutions declaring UI a sanctuary campus for immigrants and declared solidarity with the nationwide prison strikes. And it's moved forward with its freshly inked five-year contract, which guaranteed tuition waivers for regularly employed graduate assistants. It expanded health coverage and granted yearly wage increases. And they won that, by the way, after going on a major strike earlier this year. And as we've seen at K-12 schools and college campuses across the country this past year, educators of all stripes are growing increasingly bold and demanding their rights at work, even when politicians and administrators have tried to suppress them or to deny their rights or fail to recognize them as collective bargaining units. They are acting as genuine unions, if not in the letter of the law, then definitely in spirit. The Fight for 15 has been a political lightning rod in communities where inequality is rife and workers are getting restless for over five years now. In the Twin Cities, the emerging fight for fair wages embodies the political polarization of the American heartland. Minneapolis recently enacted a phased-in minimum wage of $15 an hour, marking a major victory for the Fight for 15 in the Midwest and giving a boost to similar campaigns on the state level. Now its sister city, St. Paul, is also fighting for a $15 minimum wage with legislation that is at least as strong as Minneapolis's. I spoke to Celeste Robinson, co-director of 15 Now Minnesota, about their goals and how their campaign has helped galvanize the community. So last year, workers won a $15 minimum wage in Minneapolis, and we're now a year into that phase in. So big business is at 11.25 in Minneapolis, but St. Paul doesn't have a policy yet for a $15 minimum wage. So workers there are still at the 9.65 state minimum, um, which is already starting to create challenges and discrepancies in the labor market because any worker um, knows they can commute 10 minutes, 15 minutes. 
uh, and make several dollars an hour more. Um, and that's part of what's adding so much urgency to this fight for a $15 minimum wage policy in St. Paul, uh, in addition to the fact that St. Paul has a really acute crisis of poverty and poverty wages, uh, and 40% of the city is currently living in poverty. So there's just a lot of energy and a lot of clear uh, logic behind raising the wage to 15 in St. Paul. So we are proposing um, basically a policy that is Minneapolis or better. Um, and what that means is a policy that gets big business in sync with Minneapolis. So that will be a, probably a three or four year phase in, something along those lines. So that big corporations like Walmart that we know could pay 15 tomorrow are, you know, giving raises as quickly as possible um, and, and minimizing the discrepancies between the cities. And a similar phase in, um, in the Minneapolis policy, there's a slower phase in for small business to give small businesses more time to adapt, but still get workers the raises they need very quickly. And so we are hoping for a similar policy in St. Paul, just so that at the end of the day, nobody who's working in either city is living in poverty. Similarly, just in terms of keeping administrative provisions the same, we are pushing St. Paul to adopt a lot of the same strong no carve out as Minneapolis. So that means no carve-out for things like training wages, no carve-out for younger people or older people or anything along those lines, and just saying that um, with very, very, very few exceptions, everyone working in the city is making a $15 minimum wage. Would the timeline be essentially the same? Because I know that uh, Minneapolis is still just starting its phase in. Yeah, we think that because we are uh, on track to pass policy in St. Paul by the end of 2018, there is... Um, it's definitely reasonable that we could get the two cities in sync pretty quickly. Do you see any notable differences maybe between St. Paul and Minneapolis? And are we also seeing impacts emerging because of the $15 minimum wage in Minneapolis that are creating an inequality between the, the two cities? Yeah, so the study that we did was with a coalition of a lot of groups, union groups, community groups, faith groups that went out into the community and talked to more than 700 people at work in St. Paul. Um, and what we found was that 77% of the people we talked to in retail, food service, and fast food locations primarily were making under $15 an hour. So that that is very much in line with the data um, that there is just broad poverty wages being paid across the city. Um, and we found a lot of other things on our surveys that we had 500, more than 500 workers fill out, things that, again, yeah, confirm the what most working people could tell you, which is that low-wage workers are supporting their families low-wage workers aren't just young people, they're people of all ages, and that the most common responses to the question of what would you do with a raise, most people said things related to basic, basic needs. I would have safe housing, I would have more stable housing, I would move out with my parents, I would get a car, I would fix my car, I would eat better, I could feed my kids more vegetables, things like that. So one of the things we were also doing while we did this outreach was educating people and saying, do you know that just across the border in Minneapolis, workers are already getting raises? And in some cases, it would be, here you are at a McDonald's in St. Paul. Did you know that at a different McDonald's location in the Twin Cities, people doing the same job as you are getting paid 2 and $3 an hour more? And that's very powerful. That was We found that that had a, a lot of people didn't know, and a lot of people were really, really excited to hear that that was possible. And some, you know, some people were excited to, or saying, wow, I'm considering, I would consider moving. Yeah, absolutely. Or switching my job over to a location where I could get paid more. But a lot of people were really inspired to hear that that is something that workers can win when we get together and fight. Um, and it got a lot of people really amped to be part of the Fight for 15 in St. Paul. 
for those of us not in the Twin Cities area, has there been a history of you know different political dynamics or different economics across the two cities? What would account for, well, I guess maybe the simpler way to put it is like, why don't you guys have it in Minneapolis, Chad? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that's a question I've heard a lot from a lot of working people is like, why on earth do we not have this here yet if we already have it in Minneapolis? Certainly the two cities have different political histories. You know, in a way, you could say different social or cultural makeups. But really, at the end of the day, we are one city. We are one metropolitan area. Um, and at the end of the day, like poverty wages is not a regionally articulated issue. Poverty wages are always destructive to working people and their families. And nobody should ever have to work uh, for an amount so small they can't support themselves. And so in the St. Paul conversation, a lot of what we've heard from uh, City Hall has been, well, we have to do this the St. Paul way. And that means not just replicating Minneapolis. We've heard that again and again. We have to do this the St. Paul way. And I think a lot of workers have found that there's not, that doesn't really mean anything. What does it mean to do this the St. Paul way, right? If St. Paul wants to live up to our slogan as the most livable city in America, then we need to have living wages. That's just a no-brainer. I don't know, any interpretation of, of doing this the St. Paul way that leaves workers behind uh, is not is not the St. Paul way. And I think the St. Paul workers community um, has made it clear that the St. Paul way should, should mean a living wage, a $15 minimum wage for everyone with no exemptions as quickly as possible. What we're hearing is the St. Paul way means big business gets to lobby for exemptions. That's a, that would be a pretty embarrassing thing for the St. Paul way to mean. So we've been building a strong movement to hold City Hall accountable to the St. Paul way being uh, what working people, the vast majority of the city, are calling for. As you are for this higher minimum wage on a local level, are there any threats coming down from the state? Because, you know, clearly the Twin Cities area is maybe a good deal more liberal than the rest of the state. Yeah. One of, so I guess uh, the first question, one of the threats that we do face is statewide preemption which is something that's been on the table uh, in the past during the Minneapolis campaign, where the state makes it illegal for a city to raise the wage independently. Um, and that's passed in other states around the country and has really disabled local minimum wage movements. We don't have preemption in Minnesota, and we will fight very hard to make sure that it remains that way. But in terms of the question of statewide political climate, there certainly is political diversity in Minnesota, but we, our state went overwhelmingly for Bernie. Um, and I think across the state, uh, rural areas, urban areas, all kinds of people, all kinds of voters, you see clear support for policies that help working people get ahead. And things like a $15 minimum wage, universal health care, single-payer health care, free college. Minnesota has a really strong tradition of fighting for workers' rights um, and defending average people. And actually, our, our party here is the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the BFL. Um, and that farmer labor tradition um, ha- does have a very socialist, social democratic, trade unionist history. Um, and I think that is still very present in uh, all sorts of communities across the state. And so in the current political climate, do you feel that Trump has amplified the right um, across the state? And does that you know, add urgency to your local campaign? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, this is true in Minnesota and probably across the country that Politics are coming into focus. They're getting a little bit sharper on all sides. And so you do see, an, as you see an intensification of the right, uh, you also see people really coming to terms with what it means to fight for a left program, fight for workers' rights unapologetically, um, not to accept these you know, watered-down compromises that have gotten us where we are now. 
but to really build social movements to demand the things that we need to survive. Um, and that building those social movements can be like a generative, exciting thing that engages people who have maybe given up on politics altogether. Where is labor in in Minnesota and and in the Twin Cities area more broadly, both in terms of whether they would directly benefit from this or um, what stake they have in, in pulling for workers who would benefit from a higher minimum wage but are not part of unions? One of the things that Fight for 15 has represented since the beginning in 2012 uh, is is a fight for the rights of workers in unions and outside of unions, as you're pointing to, and that it's always been linked 15 and a union. Um, that those have always been really part of the same larger fight. And so I think that right now, where we are in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities, is a growing awareness um, among many unions that it is really... Uh, <laughs> kind of all or none, right? An injury to one is an injury to all, whether a worker is union or not, and that um, fighting for, for demands that help the working class um, are in the interest of unions uh, and in the interest of unionization. And I think that there is uh, also a growing awareness amongst workers, certainly young workers, um, and, and possibly workers of all ages, of the benefits of being in a union. I mean, I think it kind of fell out of out of uh, the political mainstream for a while there, partially because that was something that was in the interest of uh, the establishment. But I think that uh, I'm, I'm young, I'm a millennial, and I think that people my age are really starting to see the benefits of being in a union and seek out union jobs. And I think the Fight for 15 has been part of that, even though we're not officially a union. Having both parts of that demand, $15 in a union, will will be closer to being on the horizon when you have one half of it. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think, I mean, for young people, it's an incredibly bleak future. Like, we don't expect to retire. We don't expect to have the kind of things that the American dream would promise. And I think a lot of young people just disengage because we, it's really easy to feel nihilistic, to feel defeated, and to feel like there's absolutely no hope of victory. But I think the Fight for 15 has been one of the most promising movements of getting young people uh, and, and all people kind of reengaged in this fight that there is actually a possibility that we could have jobs with dignity, that we could um, not have the you know vast swaths of the population be working poor, that there is some kind of dignity possible when we all band together and fight. And so I do think the, the Fight for 15 in many ways has embodied that spirit and that through the 15 campaign that are going on all over the country, that will continue, but also in all sorts of movements that are um, just starting and, and movements that are yet to come, that fighting spirit um, of rejecting defeat and, and pushing for something really bold. That was Celeste Robinson of 15 Now, Minnesota. Just as St. Paul heats up its $15 minimum wage campaign, a new study has come out of University of California, Berkeley's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. Their analysis of the $15 minimum wage policies in six cities showed that, as expected, the wage phase-in is leading to substantial gains for low-wage workers. The study, which focused on low-wage workers, particularly in the food sector in Chicago, District of Columbia, Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle, showed that the job losses that many pro-business groups had warned about did not seem to be panning out. 
They noted, quote, the new policies will increase pay directly for 15 to 30 percent of the workforce in these cities and as much as 40 to 50 percent of the workforce in some industries and regions. By contrast, the federal and state minimum wage increases between 1984 and 2014 increased pay directly for less than 8 percent of the applicable workforce, unquote. In other words, you raise pay, workers win, and so do the communities and the businesses they serve. I spoke with Carl Nadler, co-author of the report. So what we do in our study is look at the effects of the minimum wage increases in six cities. We look at Chicago, the District of Columbia, Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. And during our study time period, the minimum wages in these cities are ranging up to 10 to 13 dollars per an hour. And what we find is that these minimum wage increases are working just as intended. They're raising the earnings of low-wage workers without causing any significant employment losses. Mm -hmm. From a basic standpoint, um, unless maybe you're representing big business interests, I mean, this seems like tautology. You raise the minimum wage and wages go up. So what um, are you trying to dispel here about um, possible concerns or fears that people might have had about the minimum wage? A lot of people forget there, that there are actually benefits to employers of minimum wage increases, especially in high turnover industries like restaurants. When you give a low-wage worker more money, they don't have to look for better-paying jobs and are less likely to leave. What this means is that it helps employers save money on recruiting and training costs, and over time, the employer gets more experience and thus more efficient workforce. And that was Carl Nadler, co-author of a new report from UC Berkeley on the $15 minimum wage in six cities. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Arg, I wish I'd written that. My arg is from Teen Vogue this week, specifically from Teen Vogue's new labor columnist, Kim Kelly. It's an arg in the sense that it's a great piece, but also in the sense that I am thrilled that Teen Vogue has a regular labor column. But I'm also kind of thrilled that I didn't write this piece, because if there is one thing that gives me hope that all of our work trying to keep labor journalism alive has meant something, it's that there's a new crop of young women who cover labor in publications that I never dreamed of pitching just a few years ago. And so on that sort of sentimental note, a shout out to Kim, to Alex Press, Sarah Jones, Mindy Eser, and to the others who are here now doing the work. It is such a pleasure to have you as colleagues in this benighted industry. Anyway, Kim's piece is titled How the Ongoing Prison Strike is Connected to the Labor Movement, and it is, as you may have guessed, about the labor exploitation of prisoners and the national prison strike. In the conversation around prisons, the question of the work prisoners do is too often left out. The way they're given a false choice between staying in a cell or getting out to do hard, even dangerous labor for pennies per hour. Kim writes... Quote, prison labor is used to manufacture a vast array of consumer goods, from Christmas toys and blue jeans to military equipment, lingerie, and car parts. Incarcerated people also frequently serve as a captive labor force for prisons themselves, as kitchen and maintenance workers, and for a variety of other services, from shoveling snow after a Boston blizzard to harvesting oranges in Florida. California recently made headlines when it revealed that it was using prison labor to fight its deadly wildfires, which it has done since the 1940s. 
The prisoners, which included some juvenile offenders, were reportedly paid $1 per hour plus $2 per day to risk their lives and are barred from becoming firefighters after their release. Prisoners are paid very little for their work. The average wage in state prisons ranges on average from 14 cents to 63 cents per hour for regular prison jobs, and between 33 cents and $1.41 per hour for those who work for state-owned businesses. And while they're working full-time jobs, prisoners do not always have the benefit of basic labor protection, such as, well, clearly not minimum wage, sick leave, or overtime pay. Given that the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world, with 2.3 million people currently behind bars, the prison industrial complex would collapse were it to pay incarcerated workers the minimum wage, which creates further incentive for them to keep locking people up, end quote. The demands of the prison strikers this year directly connect their conditions to slavery, noting that the 13th Amendment provided a loophole to get around its blanket ban on slavery. Just convict people of a crime and you can force them to work for 33 cents an hour. As mass incarceration spread, so did the incentives to make money off of it. While it would be a mistake to understand prison as solely about profit making, it would certainly not be a mistake for those interested in the issue of labor exploitation to spend more time thinking about the role of prison labor in the world we live and struggle in. And it would not be a mistake for more teen and fashion publications to hire more labor columnists either. And for a special Labor Day edition of ARG, in the American Prospects, Sarita Grupta, Stephen Lerner, and Joseph A. McCartan take a look at the reality and the dangerous myths surrounding that nebulous thing we call the future of work. Their article is provocatively titled, It's Not the Future of Work, It's the Future of Workers That's in Doubt. The authors argue, rarely has a phrase been so ubiquitous in discussions of the economy or social policy. Plug it into a search engine and you'll generate 50 million hits. Scarcely a week goes by without a new convening report or foundation initiative focused on the future of work that details hair-raising scenarios about the potential disappearance of jobs before sweeping waves of robotization, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Clearly, technological change holds important implications for workers in the labor movement, yet discussions of the future of work, as they are currently constructed, threaten to become a dangerous distraction. What they mean is, it's not that we shouldn't be concerned about the future, but it's a question of who forms the core of your vision for a more fair, secure, and democratic future for workers. That means we should maybe be shifting the paradigm to the future of workers instead. There is a subtle difference, the authors argue. Quote, unless we center our thinking around the intertwined and interdependent fates of working people and their struggles for economic, racial, and gender justice, we cannot plan for a humane and sustainable future. Unquote. There have been many claims of robot overlords taking over our jobs, massive displacement of workers through automation, the supremacy of a knowledge economy, and the impending death of the blue-collar worker. Much of the policy discourse has been dominated by corporate consultancies like McKinsey or liberal think tanks. But should we really be entrusting our future jobs to the TED Talkers of the world? Actually, hand-wringing and robot fear-mongering about the future of work has been happening among liberals and conservatives alike since the 1980s. In fact, we're kind of living the future they envisioned right now. And yes, right now, there is change afoot. But rather than treat everything in our work lives as an existential crisis, tempting though that is under Trump, we can tackle it head on. 
using both historical wisdom and an open mind when it comes to issues like technology, yes, but also education and globalization. Gupta, Lerner, and McCartan are no Luddites. They are, in fact, just very pro-human. The problem is not whether artificial intelligence is about to eliminate jobs, they write. It is about who is driving this change, why they are driving it, and whether there is any democratic accountability for how change will happen and who will be advantaged or disadvantaged by it, unquote. Power is not an issue of technology or policy, but social relations and human rights. If we start with that premise, we won't have to gravitate towards singular magic bullet solutions, such as branding the universal basic income the savior of the future labor force. Of course, we at Belabored have also broached such issues, and they could indeed one day be part of a more equitable labor system. But for real distribution of wealth, we don't have to move away from jobs altogether. We don't have to capitulate to corporate forces that see technological evangelism as their ultimate path to prosperity, often at the expense of everyone else. The answer lies not so much with progress through technology, but with advancement through democracy. They write, quote, unless we can revive democracy amid the increasingly inhospitable conditions that it faces in the 21st century, workers will not be able to improve the quality of their lives. By the same token, we cannot revive democracy without addressing the toxic impact of exploding inequality. And yes, there are no easy answers. The authors admit this. But they conclude with an argument for an idea that is both old and new, true solidarity-based unionism which goes beyond bread and butter issues at work to argue for uplifting whole communities, whether it's in the sector of finance, political rights, gender or racial justice, or education. So perhaps it's time we change the tone of our conversation on the future of work and begin listening to the voices of the people at work, not what the machines are telling us, but what real life workers are telling us about their future, what they fear, what they hope for, And from there, we can work toward a common good that isn't just future-proof, but which will sustain a future that is fair for all. And that does it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in, and you can catch us again in another two weeks. Uh, Hope everyone had a good Labor Day. If you did not have a break this weekend, let us know what you did instead. Gripe to us about your job. Talk about a strike action that you participated in or some other protest you went to instead of work. You can find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Over and out.